entrepreneurs are the best innovators at figuring out how to make more and more of something or how to deliver more and more. So scaling supply, they're really fabulous at scaling supply. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. I have a lot of favorites when it comes to this podcast and this one. I feel like every time I say that, I'm surprised by finding another favorite. This one's with Derek Lido. He just wrote a book called The Entrepreneurs. He's got other books too, so check him out on Amazon. But the conversations we had about entrepreneurship and innovation, innovation versus creativity, and then going into failure and how entrepreneurs think, and then what does entrepreneurship really look like when we break it down? This one is a lot. So be prepared to take notes. Be prepared to go back and take a look at those notes because you're going to want to pay attention to swarms. The swarm. That's all I'm going to tell you. So jump into this one. This is with Derek Lido. Check him out online. He was a CEO and founder of a company called iSupply. Sold that one. Then became a professor at Princeton. He's an author. He's written a few books. Check them out. He's a scholar and he's a consultant. You're going to love this one. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Almada, and I've got Derek Lido. Yes, it's Lido. I asked him. That's the right way of saying it. Welcome to the show, buddy. Tristan, so glad to be here. You're in the East Coast, man. I'm in the West Coast. We've got both coasts covered, and we're going to talk about your new book. It's all about entrepreneurship. I'm excited because we get to interview a lot of entrepreneurs in this show, and our our audience is entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. So the book is called The Entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, entrepreneurs. But it's, it's a lot of new ideas from what you're telling me. And I want to know, where did this originally come from where you started diving into and saying, hey, hey, let me let me deconstruct what this really looks like and let me tell you what I found. What where did that come from? Well, the genesis is probably when I was an entrepreneur. So uh, when I lived on the West Coast, that's what I was. I was an entrepreneur and I started a company and it, it, it was pretty successful. Um and I was shocked when uh I sold my company and it was, you know, there was a little announcement in the Wall Street Journal and stuff like that. And then literally a week later, I get a call from Princeton University saying, hey, we're expanding our entrepreneurship program here. Are you interested in coming and creating a new class for us? And um, that sounded like a fun thing to do. And that triggered me to want to really understand how entrepreneurship works, right? I was going to teach it. And I'd always felt as an entrepreneur that I wasn't necessarily getting sound advice. I mean, everybody was willing to share their experiences and tell me, okay, well, this is, you know, how I think it really works. But it was sort of short on, you know, foundation about you you couldn't ask why or how too many times because it was really about personal experience and so when I got to Princeton I basically spent my last 12 years really understanding how entrepreneurship works and one of the big big missing elements is that Nobody has done a history of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. We think of entrepreneurship really as a modern phenomena, and, and particularly a modern phenomena that came into its own in the last 40 years or 50 years in Silicon Valley as a very special, vibrant place, you know, unlike anything in history. 
And, and, and so that's what we talk about and that's what we teach and that's what we write about. Uh, and I felt, you know, there's probably more history here than, uh, than that. And so th- for the last seven years, I've been really doing a deep dive into understanding where and how entrepreneurship emerged around the world and under what conditions. And I was flabbergasted by what I found. Do you feel like the word entrepreneur is is overused in a lot of cases by people that just don't fully understand it? Or do you think it's appropriately used right now? Hey, I'm I'm for people using words to help them express what it is that they're trying to convey. So uh, I'm not going to say, hey, people are uh, misusing the word, but I will say that we often, therefore, misunderstand the word because we don't understand how the other person really is thinking how it should be used. In your research, though, did you find that you have to have a certain criteria to be an entrepreneur? Like, do things yeah. have to match up and be like, this makes an entrepreneur? Because Jim McKelvey, for, who disco- who created Square, right, was saying, hey, look, entrepreneur, this is not what you think, right? To be an entrepreneur and an, and an innovator, right? And then he kind of told me, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So what about you when it comes to kind of like a, a, a mental checklist, if you will? Well, it turns out I had to create a very specific checklist in order to study the history of entrepreneurship, because if you That's don't so have, if you don't have a, a, a good checklist, then you can't go very far back, right? So, for example, the dictionaries often say an entrepreneur is somebody who starts a company or runs a company, and uh, that's good. You know, it it works today. The the problem is is that the whole notion of a company is a pretty modern concept and it's a concept that's 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 uh, embedded within the society right so companies here are very different than companies in China or in the Soviet Union and so that that definition alone will query the deal in terms of trying to study this phenomenon so you need a phenomenon you need a, a, a set of criteria that works everywhere for all time. So you need something that allows you to spot an entrepreneur in an archaeological rubble. You get a pile of stone in an archaeological site, cool. and you have to be able to uh, you know, figure out, was there an entrepreneur working here? And it turns out that you can do that. And there's three three criteria that you're looking for. And this works for today. It works for the first entrepreneurs that I was finding 9,000 years ago. The first thing is you're looking for people that are self-directed in you know, taking care of themselves and running their lives. So they're, they're not part of the ruling you know, family. They're not you know, part of the armed forces. They're they're not, you know, working within palace walls. So they're self-directed. Entrepreneurs are always, always, always self-directed. The second thing is that they're practicing a skill that others around them, their neighbors and, you know, uh, close by, think is valuable to them and they want to get a part of it. So they're doing something that other people think is innovative. And then the uh-huh. third criteria is that they're enticing these people that think that what they're doing is innovative into exchanging something of value in return for them delivering their special skill. So it's it's self-directed, special skill, and enticing into exchange i like that i just took notes of that i like and and i love that you said the it's not money that they're exchanging it could be time it could be ideas it could be i love that dude yeah it's it's value and which 
actually cascades through history, uh, this concept of, of, of it being more than just the exchange of money, that it be value. Because it turns out that often entrepreneurs, it's not just about the money. We think of entrepreneurs as you know people that seek profit, and they do, but they're not profit maximizers. True. I, I do notice yeah, that. They, they want more, you know. That's interesting, man. In in your in your studies and research, when it comes to entrepreneurs, I'm assuming you you found a lot of a lot of innovation. And a lot of things that were driven by by value, like you said, uh, value that's perceived by those around them. Yeah. What have you found as far as innovation? Because it, it, I'm assuming it changes over time, but at the time it's seen as extremely valuable because it's never been done or it's never been seen that way. Well, so we, yes, and but it doesn't work the way we think it works. Okay, so. Again, you, you go back and you, you see these patterns that you, you, that look super modern, right? you know. So 4,000 BC, copper tool making is just starting. You see the Silicon Valley of copper tools making, okay? It's, it's you know, a village where you know, one third of the people are involved with copper tool making, doing one part of the process or all, all of it. And, and they're the only place that really gets it in the whole, you know, Near East. And they're producing just mind boggling, fabulous stuff. Okay. What, what, what's going on? Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> And, and 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 then when you start to look for that, you find other you know, enclaves like this all throughout time, all throughout place. So it turns out that entrepreneurship, we think of it as, as sort of the, the hero, the heroic innovator that came up with the idea. Wow, yeah. you got to come up with the idea. Okay. But it doesn't really work that way. It turns out that entrepreneurs have such a massive impact because they work collectively in a swarm. Ah. And they're constantly watching one another to see what works. And if one person does something that works, it gets copied. But each time it gets copied, it gets copied not exactly, but in a personalized way. That you know, it, everybody puts their twist on it. Hey, I don't have that tool. I'll do it this way. You know, but and so in that copying, that relentless copying of everything that sort of works a little bit better, you get this massive accumulation of scale and innovation because. The things, the copying that was done in a personalized fashion that works, that sort of, you know, gets something, you know, and and creates something that works better, is more exciting, okay? Well, that's what gets replicated faster and more broadly and then serves as the foundation for the next set of innovations, the next set of copying. And so you get this massive scaling both in in scope and in innovation. And that's how entrepreneurship works. Does proximity to where the where the innovation is happening matter as far as the other people being affected? So then they start copying maybe uh, other entrepreneurs that are close by or no? So in, in ancient times, that was really important. Yeah. And, 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 and so you you would see technologies concentrated into a certain area. And, and hey, that was even true to an extent uh, 60 years ago when the very first transistor entrepreneurs were showing up in Silicon Valley. Okay. Yeah. They talked to one another. Um, and 
got hints about what to do from just the way that they were talking to one another. And so that became the hub of innovation. But in today's world where, you know, we can talk around the world for free and, and see as we're talking, that's less of a, an effect today. So mm-hmm. because it's less of an effect, what it means is that that innovation happens faster that 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 watching to see what works is on a global scale and almost you know instantaneously from a time point of view whereas before it could take Europe you know five years to copy some innovation that was happening in the US and vice versa just because it wasn't that much you know travel back and forth and it took a while to get on the boat and so it took years. Now it takes days, minutes. That's true. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I was thinking of Silicon Valley, how now we have, we have discord channels and communities. We have all Facebook communities, right. And, and, And other things where we could just jump in and just listen in or watch what people are doing and we could move so much faster. So then I think a question that entrepreneurs listening in are asking, it's like, well, where do we go? to find the innovation right because there's so much out there we could also end up in the wrong the wrong crowd right i mean you see it right now you see how there's so much to choose from and we tend to gravitate to what we're attracted to or what we want to create but still there has to be some form of checking to say hey where derek where do you hang out because i'd like to hang out there right like that yeah and so to answer that question for any individual requires a doing a little bit of homework, not the least of which is what you mentioned. Hey, we like to do things that we consider, you know, intrinsically motivating, you know, makes, I like, you know, cooking, or I like creating new things, or, or I like to see things really buttoned down and organized. Hey, there's a lot of value you can create (laughs) by helping people button down and organize. And I don't mean, I mean, California closets, okay, probably need some competition, but many things, if you're buttoned down and really organized, your filing system on, online is, is, is more useful than, than mine is right now. And if you take some time and figure out how to codify that, I, I, I'm all ears. <laughs> I'm, you know, that that service that you're going to be providing for that. Got it. So throughout time, the, the sort of a fundamental principle of entrepreneurship is that it's about making somebody or some group so happy that they give you something of value and more value in return. So what I tell my students is start from where you know how to make people happy. Start there. You might not end there in terms of the what you actually decide to, you know, turn into a business. But you can't lose by starting there. I like that. Start from where you make people happy, because right. then you're. It's a lot easier to find your why, your your passion to keep going when stuff goes wrong badly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting, man. I, I really like that. So if we dig deeper on that and we go through the research that you've done in the book, uh, The Entrepreneurs, what have you found as far as entrepreneurs shifting and now growing and saying, hey, you know what? I started with something that I absolutely loved and it grew into its own thing. Now I'm going off and doing something else. Have you seen that progression also happen? Like the best example is someone like currently like elon musk right Mm -hmm. he progressively is is doing other things right how have you found those entrepreneurs in the past deal with change so they can continue to grow well let's put us back in that swarm okay of entrepreneurs that are watching one another okay and they're they're making these improvements that are building on one another pretty quickly. It turns out, though, if you look at the nature of those improvements that they're making, 
they tend to fall into three buckets. Okay. Entrepreneurs are the best innovators at figuring out how to make more and more of something or how to deliver more and more. So scaling supply, they're really fabulous at scaling supply. But they tend to hit sort of, you know, limits of demand okay, for their, their product. And that tends to shift them into thinking about how to find new demand, how to scale up demand. Oh. Okay. So they're really brilliant. By the way, we don't, we don't give them enough credit, but we should be somewhat wary of the fabulous techniques that they're developing to scale demand, to get more people to want what they are offering and to yeah. get people to want more of what they are offering. So, okay. you know, hey, engagement time on Facebook or whatever is, is a scaling demand. Mm-hmm. But, they, but, but um, we, we, we've seen this in history as far back as, you know, 4,000 BC, when an entrepreneur would give the ruler some fabulous sculpture or something like that, okay? And then they'd go sell versions of that to all the other elite, okay? That's good. Yeah, that's an ancient, ancient, you know, example of that. Okay, but there's a third area where entrepreneurs focus and are brilliant at innovating. The third dimension here. Because you know what? If you're really good at scaling up, you're really good at creating demand and keeping demand ahead of your supply, you know what? Things get complicated. And so entrepreneurs are brilliant at figuring out how to simplify control. Ooh, that's that's really good. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing with people like Elon Musk, who can somehow run four simultaneous startups when really, you know, even 50 years ago, we we didn't have things had simplified a lot, lots of innovation in this area, but not to the massive extent that they that has been enabled in the last 20 years that gives somebody like an Elon Musk an ability to start up and control, you know, whole entire different enterprises at the same time. So we're going to see more of that because these control um, uh, services and software and products are becoming, especially now that, uh, you know, AI will be added to them. So mm-hmm. understanding your business and seeing where you need to intervene, but only when you need to intervene is going to happen more effectively and faster. Okay, so what is simple? You said something brilliant. Well, there's a lot of brilliance here, by the way, but I'm fascinated because not only do I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, like like you, but I also study them and and I'm an entrepreneur too. Yeah. Uh, what does simplified control look like to you? It now versus where it could be a few years from now. Right. So now now it's um balanced scorecard reporting, for example, okay? And software that does balanced scorecard uh, reporting. What does that mean? That means a a, uh, executive information system that sits on top of your database that gives you a summary report every morning when you come in, you press a button and you get a summary report, okay? Now, not too many years ago, and I remember this personally. When you know, when I was starting out, there was some of that data that you couldn't get, but once a month because it was so complicated to get. 
to, let alone to summarize and visualize and plot out for you so that you can sort of see something something must be happening here because they're producing slightly less than you know what that graph said that they should have okay so so we've gotten that far where it was impossible uh you know even 30 years ago, impossible to get that level of visualization. Okay. Now, what entrepreneurs are working on, and I know they're working on it, you know, some of my students are working on it, past students are working on it, okay, is, is you started getting artificial intelligence embedded in those analytical programs, right? And they're the ones that spot the trend. You, you don't have to spot it. So you can come in. A, yeah, you can come in a little bit later <laughs> to work every day, because you don't have to do that work anymore. And that's a massively yeah. scalable simplification. Yeah, I see that. That also allows you to go out and build another company or, yeah, exactly. or run two to three more, right? <laughs> exactly. That's, dude, that's I, I see what you mean. So it definitely is going to come compile and grow and accelerate. I see that. All right. So then as far as you being a professor, you get to see probably some amazing ideas in, in what your students are are working on. And I'm assuming sometimes you're like, wow, that that's kind of cool. Do you ever partner with some students to to grow other things or or are you not allowed to? This is just a personal question. Are you not allowed to as a as a professor there? Well, I think you have to be careful as a professor. Um, certainly, I, I think the school would look askance if we invested in our students' efforts when they're students. Mm-hmm. Be less so after they graduated. I mean, we're, we're here expected to be their you know objective evaluator as as a, a teacher to give them objective feedback and and being part of the team so to speak is is you know can really distort your your point of view on on giving that feedback got it got it i, I was thinking because well we talked to uh Barry Nailbuff who created uh forgot I think it's honest tea I think mm-hmm. it was and he's a professor at Yale and um so he was he was a co-founder of that and I was thinking that that just came to mind when you were talking I was like dude you talk to some amazing amazing people so all right so let let's dig deeper on on innovation because I think also like the word entrepreneur right like I love that you had a checklist for that do you have a checklist for what innovation is, or is that just apparent for most people? So, so I, I do have a checklist, and 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 it's because you know, classes that I teach on how to lead innovation, and and how. Which types of creativity lead to innovation? I have to be able to help my students distinguish between, you know, raw creativity as distinct from innovation. You know, and and those words get intermingled a lot. As an example, true. There, there's a third concept that gets intermingled here, which is design. And and so here's the difference. Creativity is very simply the ability of a person to think of ideas that are rarely or never thought about by other people. So it's strictly an individual activity. Can they, you know, come up with these ideas? And and they may be, you know, visualized in an artwork or they can be, you know, discussed in... (laughs) in writing or whatever it's 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 the individual who's creative so innovation is actually an outward facing activity 
And innovation is when you get some group of people to accept your idea or your product or your service as a new best practice. So they're saying, wow, that's really cool. I want some of that, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to you know, copy the way that you do that. <laughs> uh, that's an innovation. Now, there are small-scale innovations that are accepted by smaller groups, and then there's large innovations that you know, significant fractions of the world adopt. You know, let's say TikTok as a yeah. more innovative form of you know, social media sharing. Uh, okay, there's you know a lot of people. I don't know if it's a billion yet, but you know it's hundreds of millions of people that say this is the best practice for you know me sharing videos. That's an innovation. That's true. I see that. What a what a great definition. An outward facing activity uh, where you have a group of people accept. Uh, accept it as the norm or even accept it as something they want to jump into and be like, that's kind of cool. Let me try that and go into it. Yeah. That's a great, great definition. Because a lot of people often use the word innovative, but they're really just being creative. Right. That's that's really right. good. All right. So in your study, in your research that you've done here with the book, I'm also looking at the cover and I see people from all different eras. And all different cultures. Yeah. Which one which one fascinated you the most as far as entrepreneur that said, whoa, this is this is a little different, or or this is this is great. This is I didn't know. Well, the thing that blew my mind. So, so when I started, you know, delving in, okay, you know, when when do entrepreneurs start showing up? Okay, I expected to see them in in you know. Greece and Rome and, uh, you know, I was wondering if I'd find them in ancient China or not. Uh, I did. But I kept on digging and digging and digging. And I was blown away that I was able to go back and spot entrepreneurs as hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers. 9,000 years ago, we can find complete evidence of them creating what we would consider a mini workshop, but it's sort of like a, you know, 9,000 year old concept of a factory. So they, they create a, a large flat stone surface mm -hmm. and they make beads and pendants in specific sizes, specific shapes by the thousands <laughs> during their winter, you know, where they winter. That's crazy. And that's crazy. And in the summer, they use those to trade for goats and sheep that isn't in, you know, the part of the world where they live. And they, you know, improve, live high on the hog with meat. You know, <laughs> bad otherwise. 9,000 years ago. And there it is. Wow. And, and, you know, and there's not another explanation for why you would make beads in this higher quantity. Yeah, it's scaling, right? Already. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right there, right? That's great, man. All right, so when it comes to entrepreneurs, there, there are, there's a lot of failure involved as mm -hmm. well. And, yeah. uh, and I think you bring it up towards the end yeah. uh, of the book. Possibilities of our entrepreneurial future um and i think that we don't talk enough about the failures of entrepreneurs because we we seem to place the ones that succeed on a pedestal and then kind of just boot the ones that that we think are failing or have already failed and push them off how how have you seen the failure influences entrepreneurs in, in both a positive and a negative way yeah so there, there are two dimensions there. One dimension, uh, I, I think, isn't a surprise, and the other dimension is a, a big surprise. So what's not a surprise uh, that, hey, if you have this swarm 
of entrepreneurs. And there's this fever pitch copying that's going on. There's some people that aren't going to keep up, can't keep up, and, and they drop out. In our Western way of you know, thinking, we say, hey, they're failures. They may or may not be failures. They, they may have been naive or it may have been bad luck. So, something happened. They got sick. They had to drop out. Yeah. But it's the nature of swarms that not everybody can keep up. And, yeah. and, and so entrepreneurs should really think about and realize that they're going to be in this swarm. And are, are they ready to do what it takes to keep up? Because that's, that's the single biggest determinant. The second dimension of failure is something that has either been overlooked or swept under the carpet. And that is when entrepreneurs do something that people find exciting, they fixate on, you know, let's scale up supply, let's scale up demand, let's figure out how to simplify. And they're single-minded in that focus. And they fail at addressing and taking responsibility for the unintended consequences of their innovations. And there are a lot of them. Wow. Okay. And they accumulate. And entrepreneurship in giving us all you know, almost everything that we consider to be exciting and entertaining and productive and all of that, you know, giving medical devices for health and stuff like that. So for all the, the good things that we get for entrepreneurs, okay, we've, we've not stopped to think about, okay, but that's also brought us type 2 diabetes. It's brought us lung cancer, brings us inequalities, it brings us, you know, um, uh, deforestation. Pollution, right? Pollution, uh, all pollution, you know, virtually all pollution, entrepreneur, uh, unintended consequences. Now, I'm not saying that, the you know, it's not that the entrepreneurs are trying to be bad. They're, they're doing what, you know, what the world wants them to do, but we're just not asking them to be responsible for this. And what happens is that it builds up and it, and it builds up to the point where the population demands something to be done. But by, by that time, we're demanding it of our government. Yeah, interesting. And by doing waiting that long, we're paying for it out of our own pocket. So it shows up in our taxes and in hidden costs, higher insurance rates, uh, and 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 all of these things that add up that we're de facto paying a whole hidden social tax. In order for us to get entrepreneurial innovation galore as much as possible, as quickly as possible. There are things that we can do, and that's what I talk about in the book, to, so that we can better align you know, that responsibility in, in, so that it works for both entrepreneurs and, and the population. But by ignoring it and never realizing necessarily where it came from, we've created this disjointedness that has allowed these bad things to accumulate more than they could have or should have. Man, that's that's something I hadn't thought of. I, I love that. I didn't <laughs> think of it either. I, I, I didn't discover that, you know. But boy, but that's one of the things that shocked me. When, when I start putting all the pieces together. Yeah. I could think of, and only because it's so in our face, I can think of Mark Zuckerberg, right? And Facebook and the consequences of, mm -hmm. of that, whether it's through the social health of yeah. 
of everyone in there and and the ramifications of everything else. And we're watching it still unfold, right? Exactly. Interesting. All right. So you mentioned something on the second part of failure where you say um, the consequences of their innovation is the challenge. And you say that was beautiful. And I think people should pay attention to that because I, I never thought of it. The first part, the more obvious part, the one that you said not everyone's going to keep up i was thinking is there something specific that you thought of when you say hey for the for the current era that we live in this is the main reason they're not keeping up yeah it's funny and and the good news is we can really help entrepreneurs in this area because the dialogue is entrepreneur innovation i think get your idea right I'm going to do an Internet of Things soap dispenser. Okay, cool idea. Okay, so your success is going to come from your idea and how innovative that is. The truth of the matter is when you realize that entrepreneurship is this collective phenomena that's dominated by swarms and there are very specific things that you can do to describe swarms and how they look. But for our purposes, all you have to realize is that swarms are looking at what other people are doing that are working, okay? And they're incorporating it as best they can in their personalized way into what they're doing. That is the most important thing they do to be successful, is to be good at copying The innovation will come naturally as they personalize the copy. So you're spending too much time on the big idea. (laughs) Oh, that's good, man. That's good. Yeah. True. Uh, Here's how I'm interpreting it. So help me to see if I'm right in in what you're saying. It's the, the quickness on adaptability of whatever you're working on to make sure that it's caught on by the swarm. Exactly. So how do I grow the swarm? Exactly. So this is what we should be teaching. This is how we should be helping our fellow entrepreneurs. Wow. All right. So how do we deal with the pressures of growing all of this and the speed at which it grows? Because I'm assuming uh, the part where you said that there's no surprise, it's not everyone's going to keep up. There's a, there's a lot of pre- mental pressure that can turn into other stresses, right? How do you keep up? How did you keep up? Well, I, I, I describe my my entrepreneur years as the marathon sprint, <laughs> and uh, you know, it just it just never let up. But but I, I there was this other book that I wrote, my second book called Building on Bedrock, and. It was part of this exploration of how this really works. And I just went through the who, what, when, where, and how of entrepreneurship and what we really know and, you know, how it works. But there's one chapter that's called how good, how good do you have to be, right? How good do I have to be to ultimately keep up with the swarm? And in that book, what I realized was that they're basically entrepreneurial leagues, like the major leagues, and then there's the AAA and the AA, and then there's the after-work league and and the like. And, And that's true for most of these entrepreneurial swarms. You don't have to. There's nothing that forces you to stay at that leading edge of the swarm with the big guys that are throwing around a lot of money and, you know, get to hire the, you know, the best students and pay them absorbent salaries immediately on graduation or the like. You, You can do this regionally. You know, you could do this locally. And in, in, in that book, building on bedrock, I I profiled an entrepreneur who, who was in the cybersecurity. Oh, really cool, you know, leading edge stuff. And this was 
written four years ago when cybersecurity was even more leading edge than it is now. Mm-hmm. He created a, a fabulous business providing cybersecurity in, for Southern California medium-sized firms. Firms that tended to be run by entrepreneurs. They didn't really have the time. They weren't going to f- try and figure out, you know, which form of cyber, you know, protection they needed or whatever. And he went around, he he would say, look, you know, I've got all of these degrees from all these schools. I've got all of these clients. They're very happy. Look at that. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. let me worry about it for you. I'll put in place what you need, not more, not less, whatever. Okay. He's got an incredible business. That's crazy. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. He doesn't. He doesn't have any, you know, PhDs on his staff, okay? But he's really providing a a valuable service that, boy, oh, boy, his customers think he's innovative. Yeah, because it makes a difference. It goes back to the the innovation, the innovation stack you're saying. Interesting. He's not playing on the global league or even the national league. He's playing on the Southern California league. Yeah. And there's no problem with that. Yeah. And we, think, we, we shouldn't yeah. denigrate that at all. But we do as a culture. But we right? do. Exactly. Huh. You also profile Walt Disney and Sam Walton in the book. Where were they on this bedrock? I, I have not read the book yet. Just Now I just ordered that one too. <laughs> <laughs> so, but where were they in the bedrock? Okay. So both Sam Walton and Walt Disney were pure bedrock. By bedrock, what I mean is there, there are these two modes in current entrepreneurship of different strategies. One is the, the high-risk strategy that we associate with uh, Silicon Valley, where you, you're, you want to take get money from strangers to fund as rapid expansion as possible, where ultimately the share price, the appreciation and value is the single metric for success. As opposed to 90% of all entrepreneurs actually aspire to create a great personal working environment we call them lifestyle companies, but I call them bedrock because they care more about control. They care about being their own boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that when you analyze, you know, high risk versus bedrock com- companies, they both can get as large as one another. So Walmart was a bedrock company. Sam Walton didn't take money from investors basically until he went public. And that was 17 years after his first store was opened. He grew slow and steady. He perfected his process at every step, every store. It's not like every store that he opened was a success, but the vast majority of the stores that he opened was success. And he became the wealthiest man in the United States, if not the world, because he owned so much of Walmart, because he didn't bring in any stranger investors (laughs) until way late in the game. Walt Disney did the same thing. So they tend to use bank borrowing, you know, where they're using their profits to pay the bank interest, but they get, you know, enough of a loan that they can invest in 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 case of Walt Disney and invest in, you know, building a a bigger studio and and putting out mm-hmm. more movies and the like. So <clears throat> I, I, I headlined the book with with them as great examples, role model examples of, of bedrock entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it's not saying that high risk is is bad and that we shouldn't do it. Matter of fact, if you're going into a, a business where network effects are really you know critically important for competitive advantage then it's a it's a race for scale and you better be backed by a venture capital but you know what you better be backed by the 
venture capitalists that can write you the biggest check. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. All right. Last question for you. So I don't want to keep you too long. And and I could because (laughs) this is awesome, by the way. Thank you. Um, How much of the success that comes to entrepreneurs, like this is massive success that some of them have. How much of that is just being at the right place at the right time with the right product? How much of it is luck versus skill? And I don't know that you can quantify it, but what do you think? A lot of it is luck, but you need certain minimum levels of skill to seize that, seize the moment. So yeah, make sure you've got, <laughs> you got some good skills here. <laughs> Okay, because the moment will come and it'll come fast and you have to seize it. It may not come in exactly the way that you thought. <laughs> so you have to adapt. Right. What we're talking about. That's so yeah, funny. Exactly. The opportunity doesn't always look like you thought it would. Not at all. <laughs> that's good, man. You know what I've noticed? Like when I when I ask that question for, for somebody that's just starting off, getting some success newer versus somebody who's had a lot more success and been through it. The newer entrepreneur says, no, it's a lot more skill, definitely a lot more skill. And the one that's had a lot of success, gone through it all, says, it's definitely a lot of luck, which is interesting to note, by the way. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your time. Um, I ordered now both books, and I hope everybody goes and picks them up. Where do we find more about you? I know you have a website. Do you prefer that over Amazon, or are you on social? LinkedIn is my primary social, and I invite people to come and you know um, introduce themselves to me. If they're not selling something, that would be best. <laughs> okay, good. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I help a lot of people, and I'm you know like to hear people's stories and, and the like. Uh, I have a website, DerekLido.com. One word. Uh, you can buy the book on Amazon, and it comes out on Tuesday. So then you can get it everywhere. I love it, man. Well, we'd love to have you on again. We have a Discord channel. We'd love to throw you on there with. Okay, cool. I, 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 this is my favorite subject to talk about. So, Well, it's our favorite subject to listen to. So there you go. <laughs> Derek, thank you so much. I appreciate you, man. Great meeting you, Tristan. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.